Whoop, whoop. How are you enjoying one hour less of sleep today? All right, I can tell. One hour less of sleep. Normally I would have gotten at least one more clap out of that, but yeah, there it is. Let's get that energy going. I am uh, glad that you are here today, and we do need to start this morning with a little bit of house cleaning. Literally. I know there may be a tremendous amount of fear and trepidation and anxiety related to coronavirus and all of this stuff along with that. And so I just wanted to let you know kind of what we do here. A few weeks back, I just touched base with Joe Sardo, who is the head of our maintenance department here, and they do a tremendous job. And I just asked them, so what does that look like during the week for us? Right? Like, what sort of disinfecting do we do on a regular basis around praise? Um, and then how do we scale that up, set that up to scale up every year during the flu season? Okay? And so he just kind of walked me through that every week, twice a week, they disinfect every handle in the place. Okay? Every door handle that you might grab on, on your way in or way out. And, and things that you, all the surfaces, every between our, or after every service back in the nursery and preschool, they disinfect every toy, uh, even stuff you don't think about. The rail on the pew in front of you, that every week now is disinfected during this season especially, uh, just because that's where everybody, I, I, normally I'm preaching and I see at least one person licking that thing. So <laughs> just wanted to let you know right up front that this is the kind of stuff that they are doing for us on a regular basis. And and this week, the Springfield Health Department just asked. They reached out to business leaders and churches and just said, would you just lead the way as the leaders in your particular organization and just set things up for a little while where people, instead of giving handshakes and hugs, are giving fist bumps and elbow bumps and air hugs. <laughs> I just want to right now hug you, Mr. Kerstulevich, Dr. Kerstulevich, can I just give you a hug? That right there, that is a big old bear hug just for you. There it is. How come yours is wider than mine? <laughs> Ouch, burns a little bit. Um, but really, truly, it, it, there is no need for fear. There's no need for anxiety, and I know our attendance might take a little bit of a hit as we kind of continue through this season, but we just wanted to let you know, and you noticed even the disinfectant stuff on your way in. Um, one of the big things that over and over and over again this week people have been saying is, please, please, please don't touch your face. And so I actually have a montage for you today of all of public leaders telling you not to touch your face. Would you roll that for us this morning? All right, so essentially all we're asking 
is just for a little bit of personal responsibility, right? Like, we're just going to do the best we can, and ultimately God's on the throne, right? And so we're just going to, just for a little while, and if you're one of those people who loves to hug, I'm, I'm, I'm a hugger, okay? And, and there are other people in this room right now that are huggers, and I'm just asking you to store those hugs up in a bottle for a little bit, just for a little while, and there will come a day when you get to pull the stopper off of that bottle and you can hug the living daylights out of people, okay? So just wait a, wait a little while, maybe a few weeks. We don't really know, but let's get through the flu season and we'll be, we'll be fine. And I have to tell you right now, I have not touched my face since washing my hands and my nose itches so bad right now. <laughs> like, I am going to do my best. And if I touch my face at all during this sermon, give me a big amen, okay? Just a big amen. Let's practice. Uh, there it is. Okay. Just stop me by giving me a big amen if I touch my face or I'm about to touch my face. I'm going to do my best. We just, we just want to do personal responsibility, and I am going to lead the way. Just fist bump, elbow, elbow bumps for now. We're just going to do uh, what we can and make sure that, you know, we have the disinfectants at each of the doors and all of that stuff, okay? We're good right? No need to fear. Uh, there may be building fear in other, there, we don't have a reason to fear, and so we're thankful for that. Um, we have been working through this series uh, just about 2020, talking about focus and those things this year that we want to focus in on. We're going to continue that. It's a series that ended up being a, a series of stories about one family in the Bible, and I love this family. I think part of the reason why I love this family is Jesus loved this family, right? It says over and over, he loved them. And so um, I love that. I love the fact that Jesus interacts with each and every one of them right where they're at. That there are three siblings and there are three stories. And he interacts with each one of them individually. I love that because of the fact that we are one family. And yet we come... <laughs> And, 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 and some of us have different backgrounds and different um, uh, 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 leanings and all of those things. And God interacts with us right where we're at. And he moves in our lives as far as we'll let him. And it's just really a beautiful thing, partly for me as a pastor, but also as a father. It is an encouragement to me to know that while I am responsible for leading my family, that it does not weigh on my shoulders. That there are shoulders much broader than mine that are, is carrying that weight. And so I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful that Jesus Christ will interact with each of my kids and move in their lives, each individually for them. And so I love this story. It's an encouragement to me. And I read it and I read it and I read all of these stories and I, I see how he interacts with each of them. This week we're going to finish that series up. Um, we're going to be reading the last of those stories, so if you would grab your Bibles today and open them back up to John chapter 11. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, reach over. There should be one about arm's length away from you. You can grab that, um, and uh, if you grab one of those, it'll be on page 898. What's interesting is the third of these stories starts and pours out of the second of these stories. In fact, I want to read the last verse, the verse that we ended with last week, to kind of start us on setting this up. Okay, so in John chapter 11, Jesus raises 
Lazarus from the grave, which is a necessary thing for us to see as we kind of launch into what we're talking about this week. John chapter 11, I'm just going to read again, verse 34 is where it starts. John chapter 11, verse 34, here's what it says. And he said, where have you laid him? Sorry, verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he left? Nope, sorry, I'm almost there. Verse 44, verse 43. My nose is itching so bad, like I... Can you? It's better. All right, verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. There it is. Jesus, or (laughs) Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, and his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. That's the setup. Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave. Very next verse. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So some believe, many believe even, but not all. Some of them decide, hey, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and tell on Jesus. He raised somebody from the grave. And so they go to these religious leaders and tell them about what Jesus had done. Verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So this seems to be not a um, backroom deal between four or five leaders. This seems like it's an official gathering of the council. So this is a calling of the Sanhedrin, 71 members, whoever could show up, an official meeting where official decisions, government, religious leadership is getting together. This is no longer just a few of them trying to catch Jesus in the act or try to catch him with saying something he shouldn't. This is an official act. They gather the group. And as they gather, one of them gets up and says, after being recognized, I'm sure, on the floor, gets up and says, what are we going to do? This man performs many signs. To me, I think, well, I would say believe. But that's not even an option. Because if we do not stop him, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come, and take away both our place and our nation. We don't stop them. Everybody's going to believe. And when everybody believes, the Romans will come, and they won't just, they don't say destroy the nation. They they don't say destroy the temple. What do they say? They, They will take away our place, our place, and our nation. You can see pretty clearly what the motivations are here for them. It's about them and their position and their leadership. We will lose our place and our nation. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. How's that for the beginning of a speech? 
Y'all don't know a thing. He continues. Nor do you understand that it is better for you. Again, very clearly, what is their motivation here? It is better for you if, or that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You very clearly see that the motivating factor for them is not losing their power, position, and prestige. Right? You see very clearly that the first thing about having power is holding on to power. That that's their motivator. We got to stop him. We got to do him in. But then the story says something much deeper is happening here that none of them even recognize. Here's what it says. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. said, this is an inadvertent prophecy. He doesn't even recognize that he just prophesied, but that's exactly what he's doing. He is prophesying Jesus is going to die, and when he does, he will be dying for the nation, and not just the nation, but the people of God scattered all abroad. This is a bigger thing happening than they recognize. Continues on. Verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So officially, the warrant is issued. Officially now, the word is out. Jesus has to die. Okay? Verse 54. This is all just to set up our story, okay? Because I want you to have the context, the feel, and all the things that are happening in the background that, that a lot of time we don't see. Jesus, therefore, as a result of this, no longer walked openly among the Jews but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. So because of all of this, the warrant issued, he can't just walk around anymore. So he leaves. He heads about 14 miles north to a little town right on the edge of the wilderness where it's a little bit more sparse and it's just barely beyond the reach of those who are leaders in Jerusalem. And he hangs out there for a while. We don't know how long. Might hang out there for a week or two or a month. We know that all of this stuff is happening. That Lazarus is raised sometime between Christmas and Easter. Sometime between the Feast of Dedications and the Feast of Passovers. All of that happened. So we don't know exactly when it happened, but it's sometime around right now. And Jesus, as a result of this, knows it's going to happen at Passover. So as a result of this warrant issued, he leaves, and he goes and he hangs out. Maybe for a week, maybe two weeks, maybe a month, maybe two months, we don't know. But he does. Then it says, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So these are the people who go early, they want to be at the front of the line. These are the people who show up early in order to make sure that they're fully purified before Passover starts, 
right? They want to take care of it in Jerusalem. These are the overachievers. They show up early, and it's before Passover, but as they show up, they start talking. There's a buzz. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So the word is out. The warrant is issued. Everybody knows it. And everybody's wondering, okay, he's got to show up for Passover, right? He's got to be here. There's no way he would miss Passover. He's got to be somewhere. Do you think he's going to come? I think he's going to come to you. And you can see everybody's kind of buzzing about, will Jesus show up? or not. That's the setting. And two miles away from Jerusalem, Jesus shows up in Bethany. Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Seems like Jesus didn't even hang around long enough after raising Lazarus from the grave for them to properly celebrate along with him. It seems like he never even entered Bethany, if you remember the story. He stays outside Bethany, raises Lazarus, and then apparently heads off. Because here they are, apparently, giving a dinner in his honor. It seems like as a thank you for what he did for Lazarus. What a dinner it will be, you know? You've got one person at that table who was dead and isn't anymore rose from the grave. You have a second one at that table who hasn't died yet, but will, and will also rise from the grave. And there's the chance that there's a third person there. Because if you go to the Matthew and Mark version of this same exact story, they say all of this happens in the house of Simon the leper. We have no idea who Simon the leper is. Some people think that it's Martha and Mary and and Lazarus' dad. And some people think that maybe it's Martha's husband. We don't really know who Simon the leper is. It's the only place that he's mentioned. But here, uh, in Matthew and Mark, it says it happens in the house of Simon the leper. Some people believe that that's actually how Martha and Mary and Lazarus met Jesus to begin with. Because you don't go to eat at the leper's house, right? That would be like if you had a friend who was quarantined and they throw a fondue party. (laughs) I don't think I'm gonna make that one, guys, sorry right? You don't go to the leper's house. And so many people believe that it shouldn't actually be Simon the leper's house, but Simon the former leper's house. 
right? There are many people who believe that at that table is not only Lazarus and Jesus, but also a guy named Simon who used to be a leper. We don't know. What we do know is it's probably quite a dinner. What I love about it is how in this story you kind of see all of their personalities show up again, right? Like Mary ends up at the feet of Jesus again. Martha, where is she? She's serving in the kitchen. And Lazarus, he's just kind of laying there. (laughs) He's reclining at the table. Well, Lazarus does. I think Martha probably at this point is like, am I sure Jesus raised him from the dead? He's definitely not helping me in the kitchen. Just kind of laying there. I can't notice a difference. On a more serious note, if I'm ever raised from the grave, don't expect me to do the dishes. Okay. But it doesn't actually ding Martha for serving in the kitchen, does it? And I don't know that we can say that her motivations are out of whack here. Like in that other story, very clearly, Martha was in the wrong. But in this story, it just says that she's serving. And so maybe with a better attitude, maybe with real thanksgiving in her heart, who knows? Ah! I agree, that was an excellent point. Great point. Nailed it. Nailed it. Well, at this point. <laughs> ah, that nose, man. Whoo. Uh, unclean. Okay, here we go. <laughs> but they don't ding Martha here. John doesn't ding Martha. She's doing what she does, and it seems as if it's legitimate worship for her and thanksgiving for her. She's just serving. And, and there's some question even, legitimate question, whether this whole thing was planned by all three of them. We don't know. But some people think so. Because Martha's serving, Lazarus is listening, and Mary walks in. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I, uh, I wanted to, this week, smell the smells that Jesus smelled on this day. And all the disciples around. So, I looked up to buy some nard. You can get it. It comes from a plant called the Nardostachys janamansi. It grows on the Himalayan mountains between 10,000 and 16,000 feet. It's also known as spike nard. The reason why is it's from a flower that's pink and purple. When you grab that flower and pull it out of the ground, you know what the root looks like? 
a spike. You know what the nard comes from? That root squeezed. It says there's a pound of it. It's a Roman pound, so it's more like 12 ounces. So that's like a Coke can. So I decided, how much would that cost? Pure nard. And I looked it up online. The only place I could find it was people who are selling essential oils. Can I get an amen? Are you guys all on the same pyramid? Okay, I'm sorry. That was... Ah, amen! Okay. So I contacted somebody who sold it. They not only wanted me to buy it, but buy the opportunity to sell it to other people. <laughs> thought, what a great opportunity. No, but if you legitimately sell essential oils, I would love to get a hold of Pure Nard. I looked at 12 ounces of it, $1,500. That's today, right? With our processing and our travel, the ability to move from place to place. I'm not about to spend 1500 bucks, okay? So I went down to Mardell, or my wife went down to Mardell. It's easy how I can say I did it, but it actually she did it. That's pretty much how we do things in our house, okay? So <laughs> she went down to Mardell, and she got some anointing oil, which was just olive oil spiked with just a tiny bit of nard so that you would get the smell of it. So just mostly olive oil, just a little bit of the perfume. And it was potent. You open it up and you smell it and it's obvious. I still want to get rid of the, or get, get a hold of the, the pure stuff, just straight. How in the world does Nard get from the Himalayan mountains to Bethany? Oh, friends, on the back of camels. And I guarantee you it cost a pretty penny. Some people think that this is Mary's dowry. Some people think it's her life savings. Some people think they're just really rich. Regardless, incredibly expensive. The word used for expensive here is highly precious. Matthew and Mark, it says she comes with a, an alabaster jar of it, breaks the neck off. There it says that she anoints not only his feet, but his head as well. Here, the focus is specifically on his feet. She anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Imagine that one aunt you have who wears way too much perfume. Okay, can you imagine how potent that was? Fills the house. Twelve ounces of not just a little bit, but pure. And it is poured out on Jesus. The vast majority of it, guarantees, ends up on the ground in a pool can you imagine the fragrance there? Have everybody smelled more than any other sense your, 
sense of smell is tied to your memory. I guarantee you every single person in that room on that day, if they ever smelled nard again, were brought right back there into that room. They were marked by it, as was all of humanity. And this moment is interrupted by Judas. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him. John never mentions Judas prior to the betrayal without reminding us that he's going to betray Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't want you to ever get the impression that he's just another guy. Judas, who was about to betray him, it says, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So now we have a number on it. 300 denarii is like 300 days or a full year's worth of pay for somebody who was a day laborer. So let's assume just minimum wage in the state of Missouri for a year. And for them, it would have been six days a week, but that's somewhere between twenty dollars and $30,000 was what this was worth, if he's not exaggerating. But here's what I think is interesting. Look how quickly Judas ran those numbers. It's poured out on Jesus' feet. He's like alabaster box. I think that's nard. Carry the four. That's 300 denarii. Like that, he runs those calculations. Why wasn't that sold and given to the poor? Boy, that seems like a good motivation, doesn't it? And I think sometimes when we think of who Judas was, we kind of picture this guy who's the sketchy character on the outside of, of the group with shifty eyes, you know, like Bill Belichick. Like, we picture him, like, when nobody's watching. Oh, yeah, had to get that in there. Kicking kittens, because you know Bill Belichick does that. Deflating footballs all the time. That was Judas, right? Like, like we picture him as that sketchy character, right? But he was the treasurer. You don't make the sketchy character with shifty eyes the, the treasurer in charge of the money. And so it doesn't say that when Judas says this, everybody kind of rolls their eyes and says, oh, Judas. And when Jesus says, hey, somebody's going to betray me, they didn't all go, that's definitely Judas. I think part of the reason why John points out all the time that Judas is the one who betrayed him is because he felt betrayed. He looked at Judas and knew him all those years and all along, he didn't know that he was the one who was going to betray Jesus. He's the treasurer. And you know what it says in Matthew and Mark? That Judas isn't the only one who says it. That Judas says it and the other disciples, the other guys standing around go, oh yeah, Jesus, Judas has got a point. And so Jesus responds to them and he says, leave her alone. Harsh rebuke here. Shut your talk holes. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, 
but you do not always have me. This is something special that she is doing. Just like Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin didn't really get what was going on, she may not fully get what's really going on. But this is for my burial. And when I'm buried, she will have this. As a result of this, it says in Matthew that Judas betrays him. I want to go there real quick. Because both in Matthew and Mark, he moves this story to, they move this story to a different place in order to tie it very closely, I believe, to what Judas does next. If not chronologically, then as a result of what happens, this is what Judas does. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me? What's the bounty? What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. I wonder for Judas here. Because it seems like this was the straw that broke the camel's back. That this was the thing that pushed him over the edge. That he sees this opportunity wasted and says, he said, I'm done. And he goes to the leaders. And I guess I always kind of wondered, was that the price agreed upon from the beginning? Or did they offer him less and he talked them into more? Like, could the Sanhedrin have gotten a better deal if they would have just started at 25 silver coins? Because this is 30 coins, about a third of the value of the perfume that Mary pours out on Jesus' feet. And I wonder for Judas, I guess, as you look at this, how much did he value Christ? Like, would he have sold them for 25? Would he have sold them if they hadn't paid him up front? Because they pay him up front. They give him the 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment... He sought an opportunity to betray him. Like, how worthy was Jesus to Judas? This story is so rich. And you read it, and there's all kinds of things that are happening. You've got prophecies that the person who spoke it doesn't even know it's a prophecy. You've got the richness of this display of worship. You have motivations and values and 
what we say is the motivation and then what's the real motivation. And it's a rich story where you find kind of worship and cost. You find thanksgiving. And you find this incredible display that marks everybody who is there from then on. And all through the story, you also have calculations. Right? Like, you've got Judas that as soon as he sees the neck of the alabaster broken and poured out, quickly calculates 300 denarii. But that's not the only one. You've got Caiaphas and all the leaders on the Sanhedrin who put Jesus on the scale. Jesus, our place, our nation. It is better for you if he goes. And then Judas going and saying, how much would I sell Jesus for? Got these calculations running through it all. And I, I think what it comes down to for me as I read through the story is the value that each of them put on Jesus, right? Because you've got Caiaphas, and for them, they value something else more than the life of Jesus Christ. There's something they value more. And they are willing to give, in their mind, the thing that is of lesser value for the thing that is of greater value. And Judas, right? They, he sees money of highest value. And they, in his mind, he is willing to give the thing of lesser value for the thing of higher value. And then there's Mary. And at first I thought her situation was different. But as I've read through it over and over and over again over the last week, I don't think it is. See, I think we think, or we read this story and we think that Mary is making a tremendous sacrifice. But I don't think she saw it that way. I think for Mary, she sees the value of the nard and she sees the value of Jesus Christ. This is a story, I think, about the value of Jesus Christ. And I think Mary also is saying, it is better for me if I have him over this. If I pour this out for him. I think this is about value. I don't think this is a sacrifice. I think it's like David Livingstone. When he, when, when he got tired of people going to him, the missionary in Africa, he got tired of people coming to him and talking about the tremendous sacrifice he was making of all the things that he had given up. And he goes, I don't think you get it. He said, I have never made a sacrifice. I gave the lesser thing for the greater thing. Right? The, 
The thing that I could not keep for the thing that I cannot lose is the way someone else put it. And I think that's what Mary is doing here. I think what it comes down to for her is the thing of surpassing worth is Jesus Christ. And she is willing to pour everything out for the sake of that. So I don't think Mary has any different end goal in mind. She is giving up the thing of lesser value for the thing of greater value. I think the difference is where Judas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin missed it is they missed the thing that was of greatest value. They missed Jesus Christ, the treasure of surpassing worth, the pearl of surpassing value. They missed it. And as a result, they missed everything. I think that's what this story is about. And I guess I also read as they're kind of giving their stated reasons for things. Like Judas says, this could have been given to the poor. That's what he says is going on. But underneath the surface, that's not really what's going on. For Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, oh, they think it's about the nation, but not really, right? Like for Judas, he said it was about the poor, but it was actually about his pocket. And Caiaphas said it was about the people, but it was really about his power and his position. Ultimately, what they state as the thing that they are looking out for or motivated by is not what really is going on underneath the surface. And I guess I wonder, did they actually believe it? Like when Judas said that, did he really think in that moment that that's what it was about? Had he so convinced himself, because we have the ability to do that, to deceive ourselves on what our values really are. And this is why it's so, 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 I think, important for us to focus in on our values. Right? To stop and say, what is it that I truly value? I say I value Jesus Christ above all. But is it in fact my job is it in fact money? Is it in fact prestige? Is it in fact others' opinions of me? Is it in fact comfort? Is it in fact my family above all? Because here's the thing. Whatever occupies that place, we will sell out whatever we see as of lesser value for the thing of greater value. so if we will not take those things and truly lay them at the feet of Jesus Christ, that when it comes down to it, we will sell Jesus Christ out for that thing. Whatever we see of surpassing value, we will give those lesser values for it in a heartbeat. We might not say it, but we'll do it. We might pretend that it won't actually be the case, but when it comes down to it, every time 
That's what we'll do. So how much worth does Jesus Christ have? This is why we as a church focus on our values. This is why each of us individually should be able to spell out, here's what I value, right? Here's the values of this family. Here's my personal values. Above all, Jesus Christ. All other things at his feet. We're going to sing a song to end. It's that song, Build My Life. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And I love the lyrics to it. And let me just be transparent. Like, earlier in worship, I was struggling to worship. There are many things that are weighing on my heart. There's concern for people that I care deeply about. There are those who are far from Jesus Christ. There's fears, anxieties, and all of those things were just tearing at my attention. And I just kept battling through. And I felt like there were other people in here who were doing the exact same thing. And I really felt like I just needed to say to you, sing it. Sing it for those who cannot sing it. Sing it over hospital beds, siblings who are far from God. Sing it over children who have walked away and grandkids who've never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Sing it over your jobs. Sing it over your families. Sing it over your own heart. And some of us need to sing it as a prayer. Some of us need to sing it as a declaration. Some of us need to sing it as worship. Some of us need to sing it as thanksgiving. And some of us need to sing it even though we don't mean it. Here's what the lyrics are. You are worthy. You are worthy of surpassing worth. The pearl of surpassing value. You are worthy. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of every praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. That's the song. And I would just encourage you today to sing that as a statement, whatever the situation. He is worthy. Let's worship. Hallelujah. We just declare that today. As a result of what you have done, we will not be shaken. And for those who are in situations that seem to be shaking, oh God, today we will not be shaken as we have rightly ordered loves and valuing Christ. Above all, we will not be shaken. God, I pray for those who are declaring that today for the very first time. For those this morning who are in a place where they, 
are singing it in spite of the fact that their mind's not there with everything inside of them. They want to want you above all. Oh God, I pray that you would show yourself, reveal yourself to them. Oh God, we thank you for it. Hallelujah. 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 In this story, there is only one sacrifice. Right? There's only one sacrifice. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin gave up what they knew or thought to be of lesser value for that which is of greater value. Judas gave up that which was to him of lesser value for that which of greater value. Mary gave up that which is to her of lesser value for that which is of greater value. There is only one sacrifice here, and that is the God who is working behind the scenes to give the one who is of surpassing value for you and for me, the greater for the lesser. And that is underneath everything that is said. Prophecies that are unknown to be prophecies. Ointment that is in fact for burial. Because there is a God who is at work bringing about the greatest sacrifice of all. And this is the message of the gospel, the good news for us. We are sinners. We are far from God. And there is only one who can pay that price for us. Jesus Christ. Scripture is clear that if you're in here and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, that you need to. Otherwise, you will die apart from God. You don't want that. But in Jesus Christ, you can have salvation. The way we do that is confessing Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives, meaning that you are Lord over every part. You are above all. You are of surpassing value. I want you more than anything, including my own life. Believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead and that this is true of him. He is who he said he was. And you can be saved. Today I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. I'm just going to confess him as Lord of my life. I would encourage you to join with me in that. Pray with me. Put your faith in him today and you can be saved. Father, I do thank you. I thank you that so many times it's so easy to get distracted, to miss out on the thing that is of surpassing worth. Jesus told stories about this, a treasure in a field, in his joy, he went and bought that field. The one who collected pearls, someone who knew a thing or two about value, found that one pearl of surpassing value, sold everything else for that one thing. Oh God, Jesus Christ is that for us, surpassing worth. No, God, it's so easy to get that out of line today, right now, by your Holy Spirit. Show us 
revealed, not the veneer, not what we say, not the words that we speak. It's easy to say something but not do it. God, show us right now what is of surpassing worth, what we would not give up for you, that one thing we would not lay before you. God, if there is anything above Christ in our hearts right now, touch on that with your hand. Show us that. Reveal that to our own hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit right now. And for those who are far from you, never confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, right now I pray that you would call them to do that. It's a miraculous thing that can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God, right now, we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. You are Lord of my life. You have it all. You are above all. Nothing should be above you, O God. I want you more than anything else, O God. Be Lord over every decision and every word and every thought and every motivation and every want, O God. Every emotion, O Lord, be Lord today. I confess you as Lord, and I believe in my heart. Believe it. These scriptures are true of you. God raised you from the dead. You are who you said you are. You are God. You are Lord today. Hallelujah. We praise you and we glorify you. Father, for those who had to sing by faith today, oh Lord, I know you honor that. I know you honor a faithful singing. When they don't feel it, they sing it. Oh God, I pray that their situations would begin to reflect that faith. Oh God, for those who have sung it over situations they don't understand, oh God, bring it into alignment. Oh Lord, I pray today. All by the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ, I ask. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're in here and you need prayer for anything, this prayer team has committed to pray with you, not just today, but all week long. So if you need prayer for anything, as others step out and head out the door, would you step out and come down to the front? this morning so that they might pray for you. If you're in here and you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord for the very first time, instead of heading out the door, would you step out and come down to the front? Let them pray with you and talk with you about what those next steps might look like. May this week the Holy Spirit reveal to you what you truly value, what's really the order, and if there is anything that would not be laid before the feet of Jesus Christ, may he reveal that to you. God bless you today. Have a great week.